Psalm 116. I love the Lord, for he heard my voice. He heard my cry for mercy. Because he turned his ear to me, I will call on him as long as I live. The cords of death entangled me. The anguish of the grave came upon me. I was overcome by trouble and sorrow. Then I called on the name of the Lord. O Lord, save me! The Lord is gracious and righteous. Our God is full of compassion. The Lord protects the simple-hearted. When I was in great need, he saved me. Be at rest once more, O my soul, for the Lord has been good to you. For you, O Lord, have delivered my soul from death, my eyes from tears, my feet from stumbling, that I may walk before the Lord in the land of the living. I believed, therefore I said, I am greatly afflicted. And in my dismay I said, all men are liars. How can I repay the Lord for all his goodness to me? I will lift up the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. I will fulfill my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. O Lord, truly I am your servant. I am your servant, the son of your maidservant. You have freed me from my chains. I will sacrifice a thank offering to you and call on the name of the Lord. I will fulfill my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people, in the courts of the house of the Lord, in your midst, O Jerusalem. Praise the Lord. Now we're going to read from the New Testament, from 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 7 to 18. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed, perplexed, but not in despair, persecuted, but not abandoned, struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that his life may be revealed in our mortal body. So then, death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. It is written, I believed, therefore I have spoken. With that same spirit of faith, we also believe, and therefore speak, 
Because we know that the one who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead will also raise us with Jesus and present us with you in his presence. All this is for your benefit, so that the grace that is reaching more and more people may cause thanksgiving to overflow to the glory of God. Therefore, we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. This is the word of the Lord. Jimmy, thank you, and uh, good morning. Good morning to you. If we've not met, my name's uh, Matt Fuller. I'm one of the uh, staff uh, pastors here, and it'd be lovely to meet you afterwards. You're very, very welcome uh, as we gather this morning. There's uh, some vivid language here. Let's, uh, let me lead us in prayer that we'd understand it rightly as we begin. Father, thank you that you are a good God who cares deeply for his people. As uh, we've thought already this morning, you give us wonderful gifts, but you give us realism as well. And as we come to a passage which talks of life and death and suffering, uh, that may not be the at the forefront of our thinking, but thank you for the, the reality that is here, that there is truth for our world. Pray that we would rightly understand it and your spirit would give us the grace we need to live this to the praise of your name. Amen. Well, the point of this little section that uh, Jimmy read for us in 2 Corinthians is quite simple. Don't lose heart. That's it. Don't lose heart. Don't throw in the towel. Don't give up. Don't despair. Don't lose heart. Uh, we started thinking about it last week. Chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, since through God's mercy we have this ministry, we do not lose heart. And here again, at the center of uh, what we'll look at this morning, chapter 4, verse 16, therefore, we do not lose heart. Don't lose heart. Don't give up. That's his point. And in this section, as opposed to last time, verses 7 to 18, really it's don't lose heart in suffering. When you are hard-pressed perplexed, persecuted, struck down, don't lose heart in suffering. Now, that's a very real message for us. Now, uh, in the modern West, study after study, not Christian things, just uh, uh, sociological studies would observe uh, time and time again that actually we're not very good at coping with suffering in the West. Other cultures in the world today are much better at it. Perhaps in former times we'd have been better at it. Of course, part of the reason for that is that we're insulated quite a lot of the time these days. We don't encounter it so much. If you, if we've been here, uh, 500 odd years ago, medieval times, uh, 600 odd years ago, 20% of infants died before their first birthday. Only 50% of children survived beyond the age of 10. Well, therefore, you're, you're encountering pain on a regular basis there. 
And you've got to think through what you do about that. But in the modern West, we can largely be insulated. Even often when people uh, reach old age and start to decline, well, we can shut them away and uh, get on with our own lives. So we're insulated a little bit. But perhaps a little more than that, we put such great store by happiness now that anything which challenges that, well, we struggle to cope with. I was struck reading uh, uh, the account of Dr. Paul Brand. He's um, a medical doctor, spent all his life treating leprosy in India uh, and the last uh, five years, uh, the, the United States. He's just making his comments in a, a book he wrote. In the US, I encountered a society that seeks to avoid pain at all costs. Patients lived at a greater comfort level than any I'd previously treated. But they were far less equipped to handle suffering and far more traumatized by it. I'm sure there's multiple reasons for that. Why in a culture where we are so comfortable in many, many ways, we're less able to deal with life when it goes wrong. But certainly one part of it, which he's alluding to there, is in an increasingly secular society, when the material world is all there is, therefore the greatest aspiration that most people probably have in London really is to be happy be happy. And therefore, if happiness is challenged by pain, by suffering, you crumble. Because there's no greater value. Happiness is what you aspire to more than anything else. You just don't, you don't have the resources to cope when life goes wrong sometimes. By contrast, you come to something like this, and Paul's experience here in 2 Corinthians 4, here are resources to cope. And uh, as you read through this letter, here's a man who's experienced extraordinary levels of affliction and suffering, and yet can say, I don't give up. I'm not completely thrown by this. I keep on going. It's very striking to us. Here are resources that we need. Now, if you are just joining us today, we are working our way through this letter. It's uh, the second letter that we've got recorded that Paul wrote to the church at Corinth. And a couple of things are really going on in the letter. One, he's defending his ministry. So uh, he set up this church and it was healthy, but then uh, some uh, charlatans have come in from the outside and are exploiting the congregation. They're very impressive. They're good orators, but they're really only in it for the money. They're charlatans. And so Paul is having to defend his ministry, saying, look, I may not be as impressive as them, but I have integrity. And just because my life is difficult doesn't mean that I'm wrong. So he's defending his ministry, but at the same time, he's modeling as well. He's saying, look, just like I am, even in tough times, you've got to keep on being faithful to this message of Jesus Christ. There's extraordinary resources to save people for eternity and to cope with life here and now. So he's both defending his own ministry, so they keep following the gospel message of Jesus Christ and saying, Not many of you will live as extreme a life as mine, but in part, I'm modeling what gospel ministry looks like. It's a bit like Jesus, unsurprisingly, who suffered to achieve great things. And that's a path that Christians will follow as well. Last time we looked at verses 1 to 6 of chapter 4, really the emphasis, uh, don't lose heart, just keep preaching. That is, keep telling people about Jesus Christ. But in this section, as I say here today, it's don't lose heart even in affliction, even in suffering, and particularly those afflictions which come because you are 
pursuing, you're serving Jesus Christ. So I think you could say generally of suffering, but acutely it's suffering that comes because you're serving Jesus. Don't lose heart. That's the big idea. Uh, really, there's, there's uh, verses 7 to 15, uh, a one reason for that leads into it. Don't lose heart. And it's suffering reveals the power of God, so don't lose heart. And then after that, there's a second reason. Don't lose heart because our troubles are achieving at eternal glory. So let's take those two. First then, suffering reveals the power of God. Verses 7 to 12, for the sake of others, 13 to 15. So don't lose heart. Verse 7, Paul sets up this contrast. There's a metaphor going on, obviously. We have this treasure, he says, in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. What treasure? Well, the treasure is, we've just spoken about it, the glory of God. Or as it's explained in verse 7, God's power. Okay, what's he saying? In the culture of the time, jars of clay are cheap. They're thin, cheap vessels that you use to carry around junk. At the end of a mealtime, you clear all your junk, you put it in a jar of clay and you throw it away. They're disposable items, like your, your takeaway curry tray. You just use it and you chuck it away. Cheap. Treasure is obviously valuable. But the emphasis really here is upon uh, its fragility. A jar clay, drop it, smashes. It's weak. It's feeble. So Paul says humans, and particularly his ministry, he's like a jar of clay, very fragile, very weak. And even though he's being battered, he survives. You might think of it um, a bit like this. It doesn't quite work. Jars of clay now, we have sort of nice ones that people spend lots of money on and sort of glaze that it's expensive. They're disposable. But these sort of things, uh, we'll have coffee or tea in them afterwards. They're, you know, they're very feeble. You know, sometimes you're sort of talking to someone and, you know, you just, you crack it. Not because you're annoyed with them. You just, you know, you're just playing with the thing and you just, you just crack it. They're cheap. They're disposable. But crucially, they're weak. They're feeble. There's not a lot going on to them. Now, by contrast, there's this one, which I defy you to crush. Because earlier in the week, I filled it with concrete, which is set just about. (laughs) That's right. That's right. So this one, this one, you're not going to crush. It's concrete. It's heavy. It's solidity. There's solidity. No matter this one, a normal plastic cup, any slight pressure, it cracks. This one, same cup, you're not, you're not breaking this thing. And that's what Paul is commenting on here. He said, this is how God has designed humans, and it's how he's designed gospel ministers and those who are Christians, just the same, weak, feeble. And yet there's something in them which keeps them going despite extraordinary pressure. There's a real difference here. Of course, the point is, if God had made humans strong, we're all steel boxes, no matter what comes from the outside, well, great, the humans are impressive. But what is striking about how God has designed us is, you look at this, you look at someone enduring exceptional pressure but not being crushed, and you say, hold on a minute, (laughs) he's cheating. There's something going, that's not normal. 
the amount of pressure, and I'm physically very strong man, and I'm squeezing this thing very hard, just, just so you understand that. The, uh, very strong. The, um, the amount of pressure that this cup is withstanding without breaking. Oh, is, that's not right. There's something inside that cup that is keeping it going. Yeah, that's right, says Paul. We're just jars of clay. But there's treasure inside. Why has God designed it this way? Well, it's very clear, verse 7. We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that what? To show that this all-surpassing power, God's power within, it's from God and not from us. God keeps people going when under exceptional pressure. It's not their own resilience and strength. That's why we're so feeble and easily crushed. He changes slightly the uh, the metaphor going into uh, uh, verses 8 to 10. So uh, verse 10, I think, explains uh, what it most clearly. So verse 10, uh, we always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. What does he mean by that? He means my life is so hard, you might call it a death-like life. Again, the, the, the pressures upon me are so extreme, but that just reveals that the only thing that keeps me going is the life of Jesus, his resurrection power. What do you mean the death of Jesus, Paul? Well, I'll tell you what I mean in verses 8 to 9. My, my, my experience is this, I'm hard-pressed, I'm perplexed, I'm persecuted, I'm struck down. And verse 10, these things are always going on in my life. That's what the death of Jesus looks like in my life. But I'm kept going by his life. What do you mean? Well, same, the, the, the second half of all those parallels. I am not crushed. I am not in despair. I am not abandoned. I am not destroyed. So my life is objectively pretty rubbish, says Paul. I am always, verse 10, experiencing these things. Again, verse 11, I'm always being given over to death. These dying-like experiences of being hard-pressed. But I'm not abandoned. I don't despair. So Paul says, okay, let me... Do you want to know what the power of God looks like, Church of Corinth? Because these new charlatans, they're saying they're very impressive and they're very powerful. Do you want to know what the power of God looks like? It is not the avoidance of pain. It's endurance with thanksgiving. That's the power of God. Oh, anyone can avoid pain. The avoidance of pain, well done you. But enduring with thanksgiving, you only do that if God's power is at work in you, he says. God sustains us feeble jars of clay. Verse 11, excuse me, uh, uh, yes, verse 11. We who are alive are always being given over to death. Why is it? It's for Jesus' sake. Why is it? so that his life may be revealed in our mortal body. God makes us jars of clay, allows us to experience suffering and keeps us going. So people go, there's something inside of that person that's not right, that's different, that God is at work in them. That's the only reason they can keep going. So suffering reveals the power of God, 7 to 12. Just to push it a little bit further, verses 13 to 15, it is for the sake of others. So verse 12, death is at work in us, says Paul, but life is at work in you. 
the end of the little section, verse 15, all of this that I'm enduring, all of this, verse 15, is for your benefit, so that grace is reaching more and more people, may cause thanksgiving to overflow. This is all for you. What do you mean, Paul? Well, let me explain, verse 13. Uh, Because it's written back in Psalm 116, I believe, therefore, I have spoken. We had it read, Psalm 116, David said back then, I was in terrible affliction, I was about to be killed, God delivered me, so I'm going to praise him. In the middle of the assembly, so other people will praise him. David says, I was having a terrible time, God delivered me, I praise him, join me. Paul is saying, I'm having a terrible time, God sustains me, I will praise him, join me in praising him. That's what he's saying. Paul has known God's sustaining power and speaks of it because, well, verse 14, because we know that the one who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead will also raise us with Jesus and present us with you in his presence. Paul says, look, the same power that's at work within me to keep me going in all these sufferings, I know that on the last day that'll raise me up, that I'll go to be with Jesus in the new creation and you as well trusting in him and so all of this verse 15 is for you all of my sufferings extraordinary comment to make is for Jesus but it's for you what how does that work well verse 15 all of this is for your benefit so that the grace that is reaching more and more people what does that mean Paul is saying as my life goes down and down and down and gets worse and worse and worse but you but God keeps me going That brings grace to others. They look upon that and think, that's extraordinary. It must be God doing that. So as Paul's life goes down and down and down and down, but God still sustains him, praise goes up and up and up to God's. Because people say, that's not Paul. He's not that impressive. He's just a glass, a jar of clay. God is at work in him. You understand, people are understanding that God's power works through weakness. And there's a fundamental gospel truth to that. Because, of course, at the heart of the Christian faith is Jesus Christ dying a horrifically weak death, physically, but also more crucially, spiritually, terrible weakness. But in that weakness, there's the power to save people. Because as he dies a very weak death, he does so in place of people like you and me. He takes our sins so that we might be forgiven. In his weakness, extraordinary power for salvation. Paul says, I'm just a little echo of that. In my weakness, people observe power, God's power at work. All of this is for you. Or to put it, uh, give it completely change the illustration in one sense. I don't know, uh, if you follow your motor racing, some will, some will follow their motor racing. And uh, even if you know very little, next weekend is the last Grand Prix of the season. And uh, Mercedes have just dominated this year. They've got the best car. It always happens in Formula One. One team has the best car and they win. And so this year, every race pretty much, 
Uh, Lewis Hamilton or Nico Rosberg have won. They've just got the best car. Mercedes come one and two. So next week, probably Lewis Hamilton will win and Nico Rosberg will come second. And they'll be one and two. Because uh, they always win. That's what they do. And so Lewis Hamilton will, uh, will win the, the Drivers' Championship. And then we'll remember he's British and go, yeah, we've got a champion. And uh, who cares about football and rugby and any of those things? We've got a motor racing champion. Hurrah. Uh, and we get very excited by that. But he, of course, he'll win. I mean, he's good as a driver, but he'll win. He's got the best car now. What if next weekend, final Grand Prix, Lewis Hamilton said, I'll show you how good I am. That Matt Fuller, he's got a 1.4 Skoda Octavia. I'm going to race in that. And if he drove the Grand Prix in my 1.4 litre engine car and won, that's a good driver. <laughs> that, now that is impressive. Then you say, oh, it's not just the company, it's not just he's got the best car, that bloke is extraordinary to win in that old thing. It's a very good car. Uh, but to, do you see, that's the point. If Paul was just a super, superbly impressive on every front character and he endures life, who cares? But God is the driver, as it were. God is the power at work within Paul, within a frail, exhausted, suffering, afflicted man. So people go, no, hold on a minute, that's extraordinary what's achieved in that man's ministry. It's extraordinary what he can do. That's the power of God. Now, what do we do with a truth such as this? Suffering reveals the power of God for the sake of others. What do you do? Well, here's a couple of things. One, give thanks when you see it. It's meant to cause thanksgiving and praise to God. Give thanks when you see it. In a general sense, in the congregation here, there are some who have been through great trials and afflictions and suffering. They've not avoided pain, but they've endured it with thanksgiving. And give thanks to God when you see that. Yeah, it's always... It's always odd to name names, but you know... Hannah, I give thanks for you. You know, you've been through a terrible time and you're just full of, you're just full of joy. It's amazing. It's very impressive. Give thanks when you see it. And yet, I think more acutely, more, more, more specifically here for Paul, the suffering he's speaking about is the suffering for ministry, not just the general sufferings that life brings, but suffering for doing the work of Jesus that means he's hard-pressed and bewildered and at the point of uh, being ground down. And so at that point, I, I wonder if you want to give thanks when you see this, but there's also a challenge here. Because Paul is wanting to model ministry in some sense, a model Christian living for us, and would say, look, when you give yourselves absolutely wholeheartedly to serving Jesus, not retreating into comfort, but giving yourself to the point when you think, oh, I, I'm a bit bewildered, I'm exhausted, I'm being a little persecuted here for telling people about Jesus. Financially, I feel a bit hard-pressed because of my generosity to his work. When you put yourselves that, when you put yourselves on the edge, oh, then extraordinary grace goes out to people and great thanksgiving goes to God because it's obviously not you doing it. Now, I want to be slightly careful. You don't want to just pursue pain and suffering for the sake, but he's not saying that. But when you give yourself to serving Jesus Christ and it's hard, but he keeps you going. 
People notice that. And great praise goes to God. Suffering reveals the power of God for the sake of others. So don't lose heart. If life is hard, don't lose heart. Keep going. It's a wonderful thing that God does within you. Don't lose heart. And second thing, don't lose heart then because our troubles are achieving an eternal glory for us. So you see, uh, that, that, that the whole the first point culminates, all of this is for your benefit, G- giving to overflow to the glory of God, therefore we don't lose heart. But then he goes on. Though outwardly we're wasting away, yet inwardly we're being renewed day by day. Now, that is obviously true. Well, certainly the first half is obviously true, isn't it? For one and all. I mean, everyone in this country knows. Outwardly, we're wasting away. Here's a little research I did this week. Uh, I didn't do it, actually. I just Googled it. Um, but research is a super drug. Let's say that, on average, uh, women in the UK spend £18,000 on their faces during a lifetime. Apparently, half of that is on cleansing products and half of that is on makeup. £18,000. I didn't have a figure for men, I'm sorry. Uh, overall in the UK, £15 billion is spent on anti-aging products every year. That's a lot of money, isn't it? That's a lot of moisturiser going in to various bits of the body. Hey, that's extraordinary. Last year, £2.5 billion was spent on plastic surgery, non-essential plastic surgery, not soldiers coming back from the war, but just merely cosmetic plastic surgery. Why is that? We don't like, we're fading away. We don't like the fact that, as he puts it here, outwardly, we're wasting. But you can't resist it. Of course it happens. There's an honest truth here. As you age, hair grows thin, bums grow fat, and flesh starts to sag. That's our future. If you're wealthy enough, you can try and resist it, but it still gets you. And if it doesn't, you look pretty weird anyway. (laughs) Outwardly, We're wasting away, he says. Can't resist that. You know, the classic story, uh, Oscar Wilde's classic story, um, uh, the novel he wrote, the the picture of Dorian Gray. You know the story, Dorian Gray is a wealthy young man and has his uh, picture painted. And he looks upon this picture, his portrait, and uh, actually has a moment of real melancholy, has a morose moment. This is how sad, how sad that I will grow old and wrinkle, but this picture will remain, will uh, uh, be perpetually young. How I wish that the picture would age, and I would stay the same as I am forever. I would give my soul for that, says Dorian Gray. And if you've read the novel, he does. That is precisely what happens. And so he stays perpetually the same uh, late twenty-year-old man, and he realizes over a while that his picture. Is aging. Pretty weird. So he locks it away in the attic so no one can see it. But what happens is not only does the picture grow old, but because he's this odd character who's given his soul away, that he becomes bitter and unpleasant and nasty. And so how he treats other people gets reflected upon his portrait. Not just aging, but anger and bitterness and cruelty revealed on his face until eventually he can resist it no more. He goes up in the attic, looks at the picture. The picture's so horrific, he goes and dies and kills over the end. Don't do that if you ever have your portrait painted, I think is the point. 
What Paul is describing here is the complete opposite of that. Verse 16. Outwardly, we are wasting away. Yet inwardly, inwardly, we're being renewed. Day by day, speaking of the Christian here. Renewal. You see, this promise has nothing to do with physicality. This is this has got nothing that will help your receding hairline or your creaking joints. It's not going to help those things. Outwardly, we waste. But, says Paul, the Christian knows, inwardly, being renewed, changed, growing more glorious. How does that work? Well, I don't know. Elsewhere in Paul's writings, uh, uh, Colossians 3 verse 10 or Romans 12 verse 1, he'll say that we're renewed by the knowledge of Jesus Christ. Or as he's put it earlier here in chapter 3 verse 18, it's as we look to Jesus that we're transformed, that we're renewed. renewed. But here, here he says, how are we renewed? It's our afflictions. Verse 17. For, because, our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. Let's compare them, he says. Life now, light and momentary troubles. Preparing for us, uh, verse 17, an eternal glory, or literally weight. Light, momentary, heavy, eternal that's what he's comparing. Now, if you read, when we read on in this letter, chapter 11, you'll see that Paul is a man who's known starvation. He's been shipwrecked. He's survived 24 hours on the open sea. He's been imprisoned for months on end. Five times he's flogged within an inch of his life. He says he feels like death. And you think, actually, that is a bit more extreme than me. And yet he can call this light and momentary troubles. How can he do that? Because he puts them in a scale, an old-fashioned set of scales. And says, do you know what I'm experiencing now is light compared to the weight and the eternity of what awaits me. And we get that. If you get a, you know, you you buy some new shoes sometimes uh, and you get a blister on your foot. It's the summer and you you buy some new summer sandals, ladies, or whatever they are for the men. um, You buy some new shoes and you walk for a bit and you just get a blister on your foot and you think, oh no, it's rubbing away and it's just irritating on your heel and it's getting red and raw. That's painful, that's annoying. But look, if you've got to walk two minutes and then you know you arrive at your five-star hotel where for the next fortnight you're just going to be wearing flip-flops, you don't care. It doesn't really matter. It's light and momentary compared to, well, the pleasure that awaits you there. And if you're on the tube one day, and as sometimes happens, you think, oh, I'll sit over there. And someone says, no, you won't, and barges you out of the way and, and dives for the seat and grabs it in front of you. You think, what a rude man. You could really stew on that and sort of uh, get raged up about those sort of things, depending how bad your week has gone at work. But you just sort of, or you can think, well, do you know what? It's my birthday. I'm going to have dinner with my 20 favorite people, and that's where I'm on the way to, so who cares? He's an idiot. I'm going to spend the evening with lovely people. All my lovely people are going to be gathered. You don't care. And Paul says, look, I can put extraordinary hardships now in the scales of eternity, and I don't care. Oh, it hurts. I'm not saying it doesn't hurt, but relatively speaking, it's light and momentary compared to the eternal and weighty glory that is to come. But the strange thing is, verse 17, the verb here, 
It's not our light and momentary troubles are not as significant as our eternal glory, but our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory. Our light and momentary troubles are producing eternal glory. That's interesting. Paul says it it is through the afflictions, the troubles of here and now, that I'm being changed, and the, the afflictions and the troubles here and now are multiplying, multiplying the glory that is to come. But that's a pretty profound truth, he's saying. Not, don't make the mistake, not that suffering is in any sense meritorious and gains you, not that, but suffering is productive. It trains us, shapes us, prepares us, for glory to come. Our light and momentary troubles now are achieving greater glory then. Why does that matter? Well, it matters enormously because it means that no suffering, no affliction, no trial here on this life, in this, on this planet, is without purpose. They all have a meaning. They're achieving for us a greater weight of glory in the world to come. God puts purpose into the afflictions here and now. That matters enormously. And so verse 18, what do we do with that as a truth? Well, here's what we do, verse 18. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. What is seen is temporary. What is unseen is eternal. So Paul would say to the church back then, don't fix your eyes upon the charlatans who do a great show and look impressive and superficially glorious. Don't fix your eyes upon them because that ministry will fade very quickly. The razzmatazz, the bright lights, the he is bogus man or whatever he was called then. He wasn't called bogus man, obviously. Um, that'll fade. Don't fix your eyes on that. Fix your eyes on what matters. I guess don't fix your eyes upon the beautiful, glamorous people and try and be like them. They'll fade. The sex symbols of today, they fade. Impressive for 20 years, maybe. They can really hold on a little bit longer, but they fade and they die. Don't fix your eyes on them. Don't fix your eyes on the rich and powerful of this age. It's only temporary. Oh, they may hold power for a few years. You can be a president and hold power for four years, eight years. But then that goes, and the next one comes. Don't fix your eyes on them. It's fleeting. Fix your eyes on what matters. And of course, in this context, the reality is suffering. Suffering's visible. We see it, we feel it, it hurts. Inner transformation is not visible, but it lasts. God is using our afflictions to prepare a weight of glory. So don't lose heart. Don't lose heart. Suffering for Jesus reveals the power of God so that others are built up. 
we are just fragile eggshells in which the power of glory resides. But he'll use that truth to really encourage and build up others. So don't lose heart. You think, I can't do anything for the Lord right now because I'm in a bad place and I'm suffering. No, 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 you can do great things just by keeping going. It's an enormous encouragement to people. Don't lose heart. And don't lose heart in, our, in your afflictions, the sufferings, the troubles of now. They are achieving an eternal weight of glory. So don't lose heart. Keep going. Keep going. Let's pray together. Father, these are strong truths. It's a strong meat for our souls. And we do pray you'd help us digest it rightly. We wouldn't be perverse and seek to bring suffering upon ourselves. That would be foolish and stupid and you don't desire that. But let us not go to the other extreme, the culture we live in of desperate, desperate, desperate to avoid any pain and, and suffering and inconvenience and encumbrance will be those who know that you use suffering for good, for the encouragement of others, so that your power is displayed. And secondly, to achieve for us a future glory. So would these truths be rightly nourishing, we pray, so that we do not lose heart, but give great thanks and praise to you. Amen.